Welcome to a history of the space race podcast. Episode 58, Man Rating Apollo. As we enter the first half of 1968, the Soviets are still struggling to begin flight testing on their N-1 rocket. Meanwhile, NASA was moving full steam ahead to man-rate the Apollo spacecraft in anticipation of returning astronauts to space for the first time since the Apollo 1 fire a year ago in January 1967. NASA was looking to man-rate three main pieces of hardware before launching the first crewed Apollo mission. The first was the Apollo Command and Service modules that would serve as the spacecraft. The second was the Lunar Excursion module, and the final part was the Saturn V rocket. After the Apollo 1 fire, NASA and North American Aviation had a lot of work to do to reconfigure the command module before it would be ready for launch. This left the Lunar Excursion Module and the Saturn V rocket as the items that NASA could go on to man-rate first. The Saturn V rocket was effectively man-rated after the first all-up test during the Apollo 4 mission in November 1967. Nevertheless, NASA still wanted to do more testing before putting humans on top of the first Saturn V. The vehicle that NASA focused on man-rating next, however, was the Lunar Excursion Module. The first Lunar Excursion Module arrived at Cape Canaveral for flight testing on June 27, 1967. This was five months after the Apollo 1 fire, but also three months later than when NASA originally planned to launch the Lunar Module. NASA planned to use a Saturn 1B rocket to launch the lunar module into orbit for flight testing. The Saturn 1B rocket to be used was the same Saturn 1B on which the Apollo 1 command module had sat. After the fire, the rocket was recovered and ready to be slotted into a new mission. Since the lunar excursion module only needed to be flight tested in Earth orbit, NASA did not need something as powerful as the Saturn V rocket. Thus, this surplus Saturn 1B rocket would do. The lunar module, however, was far from being ready to launch when it arrived at Cape Canaveral at the end of June 1967. After its arrival at the Cape, NASA technicians mated the ascent and descent stages of the lunar module and placed them on the Saturn 1B. But they soon detected leaks in the fuel lines for the ascent engine. This necessitated separating the ascent and descent stages again for repairs before putting them back together. But after putting them back together, the technicians discovered another leak. 
Several items for the lunar module simply had to be sent back to the factory to be reworked. After the equipment returned and the ascent and descent stages could finally be put back together for a third time, the technicians could finally start flight readiness tests. By the time the lunar module was finally ready and checked out, it was December 1967. Now, nine months after the original date for the first launch of the lunar module. During this time, the technicians in the Launch Operations Center had to learn new methods to keep a rocket maintained while sitting out in the open on the Florida coast. Remember, this Saturn 1B was originally for the AS-204 mission which, before the Apollo 1 fire, was supposed to be launched in February 1967. So, by the time the lunar module was ready to fly in December 1967, it had been sitting on the launch pad for nearly a year, far longer than was customary. The Saturn 1B actually had to be moved after the Apollo 1 fire. The rocket had been standing on Launch Pad 34. After the fire, the rocket was unstacked, moved over to Launch Pad 37, and then restacked in April 1967. The launch operations personnel at Cape Canaveral knew the rocket might not be launched for some time. So, they knew from the beginning that periodic inspections had to be made to ensure that equipment was not corroding as a result of exposure to the nearby ocean. They also repeatedly put the rocket through nitrogen purges to protect the engines and other equipment from the salty air. And the propellant tanks were similarly kept under pressure using nitrogen. These methods helped to keep the rocket in a state ready for use. On January 22, 1968, the Saturn 1B was readied to launch the Lunar Excursion Module into orbit. The mission was officially dubbed Apollo 5. Sitting on top of the Saturn 1B was the Lunar Excursion Module, as well as a nose cone that simulated the aerodynamics and weight of a command module at the top. The purpose of the Apollo 5 mission was to test fire both the descent and ascent engines of the Lunar Excursion Module in space. There was also a secondary purpose to test what would happen with the second stage of the Saturn 1B, which was the S-4B, when the liquid hydrogen fuel was dumped into space. You see, in the mission profile for the moon landing, once they were in orbit, the command module was to separate, flip over 180 degrees, then come back to dock with the lunar excursion module and pull the lunar excursion module out of the S-4B. NASA believed that it was too dangerous for the command module to attempt to dock and retrieve the lunar module while the S-4B was still fueled. 
So the plan was for the S4B to dump any remaining fuel before the command module retrieved the lunar module. NASA wanted to see if dumping the fuel would create any unforeseen problems for purposes of docking and retrieving the lunar module. The launch of Apollo 5 on January 22, 1968 went perfectly. The first stage of the Saturn 1B lifted the payload into space. The S-4B then put the lunar excursion module into orbit 10 minutes after liftoff. The lunar excursion module then fired attitude control engines to pull itself out and away from the S-4B. Then came the moment of truth. The lunar excursion module fired its descent engine first, and it worked. Then they fired the engine again a second time, and it still worked. They then did the same thing with the ascent engine, firing it twice in what was known as a fire-in-the-hole maneuver. It was known this way because NASA had kept the descent stage attached while firing the ascent stage to simulate what would happen in an emergency if the astronauts needed to abort in the middle of a lunar landing and fire the ascent engine while the descent stage was still attached. With both engines working, the main part of the Apollo 5 mission was a success. The lunar module was eventually allowed to burn up in the atmosphere. As for the other mission objective with the S-4B rocket, when NASA dumped the remaining liquid hydrogen fuel, they found that the fuel dump caused minor variations in attitude control. But these changes in attitude were relatively minor and could be corrected. So with that, the Apollo 5 mission was considered a success. Three months later, in April 1968, NASA moved to man-rate the Saturn V rocket with the Apollo 6 mission. Now, as I said before, the Apollo 4 all-up test of the Saturn V rocket was a success. Nevertheless, that test had revealed a few issues that Von Braun and the Marshall Space Flight Center wanted to correct. One issue was Pogo about 30 seconds after the start of the S-1C first stage. The POGO was under the maximum tolerance for manned flight, but the engineers nevertheless wanted to eliminate the POGO if they could. NASA also wanted to ensure that the launch pad crew had more experience launching a Saturn V rocket before performing a manned mission. Apollo 6, however, would reveal serious problems with the Saturn V rocket. On April 4, 1968, the Apollo 6 mission began with the launch of a Saturn V, only the second Saturn V ever to be launched. This time, the Saturn V rocket would also carry a command module and service module 
as well as a simulation of the lunar excursion module for weight. Shortly after liftoff, sensors once again showed POGO during the S1C first stage. But the POGO was worse this time because Apollo 6 was carrying a payload with a command module in a simulated lunar excursion module. Still, the POGO was well within tolerances for manned flight. The real problems began when Apollo 6 jettisoned the first stage to fire the second stage S2 rocket. The S2 stage was powered by five liquid hydrogen fueled J2 engines. After jettisoning the first stage, all five J2 engines fired on cue. But shortly thereafter, two of the five engines stopped. This was bad, but still not fatal to the mission. The remaining three J2 engines fired for longer to compensate for the loss of thrust. When the second stage S2 exhausted its fuel, however, the rocket still had not reached the desired altitude and velocity. At this point, Mission Control in Houston was planning to fire the third stage S4B longer to make up for the loss of engines on the second stage. The S4B did successfully bring the payload into orbit. As planned, the S4B engine then turned off and the rocket and the spacecraft coasted in orbit. The next step was to restart the S4B engine to simulate the translunar injection maneuver. But at this point, there was another failure. The S4B engine refused to restart. This meant that if this had been a crewed mission to the moon, the mission would have had to be aborted. There was no going to the moon if the S-4B did not fire. NASA attempted to proceed with the remainder of the mission by separating the command and service modules from the S-4B. They tested the service module engine successfully by firing it continuously for a total of 442 seconds, longer than what would be needed in a mission to the moon. This sent the command module to over 22,000 kilometers away from the Earth in an elliptical orbit. As the command module's orbit brought it back to Earth, it re-entered the atmosphere and splashed down in the Pacific Ocean 10 hours after liftoff. This once again verified that the command module's heat shield worked. The Apollo 6 mission was not really a success. Had there been a crew on board the command module, they would have been fine but the multiple failures in the Saturn V rocket's upper stages and the POGO problem in the first stage clearly showed a need for improvement. And of course, if this had been a mission to the moon, the Saturn V's failure would have forced a mission abort. 
an investigation into the failure of the J2 engines, two on the second stage S2, and the one on the third stage S4B, began immediately. The conclusion was that leaks in the fuel lines had triggered a series of events on both rockets that caused the engines to shut down. On the S2, there was actually only one problem with one of the J2 engines, but some crossed wires meant that when one of the engines shut down, it triggered a second engine to shut down as well. On the S4B, the engine started firing before the failure was complete. After the engine shut down and the rocket stage coasted in orbit for a bit, however, the failure was complete and the engine could not be restarted. The fuel leaks had not been detected due to an inadequate amount of ground testing. The leaks had been caused by various vibrations in the expansion and contraction of fuel lines with the super-cold liquid hydrogen running through them. During engine tests on the ground, the super-cold liquid hydrogen liquefied the surrounding air around the fuel lines. This liquefied air acted as a kind of shock absorber that protected the fuel lines. But in space, there was no air, so there was no liquefied air to act as a shock absorber, and the vibrations, expansion, and contraction led to fuel leaks that led to other problems that shut down the engines. To address these problems, NASA engineers decided to install shock absorbers on the fuel lines. They also redesigned portions of the fuel lines to include bends so that they could expand and contract as the fuel moved through them. As for the POGO problem, an investigation determined that when the F1 engines burned, they vibrated at a specific frequency that happened to roughly match the structural frequency of the rocket. This caused vibrations up and down the rocket. Though the vibrations were not destructive, they were putting stress on the spacecraft and any potential crew. The decision was made to detune the F1 engines so that they would not vibrate at the same frequencies. Although the Apollo 6 mission was largely a failure, NASA did not receive much criticism from the press. On March 31, 1968, less than a week before the Apollo 6 mission, President Johnson announced that he would not be seeking re-election in the hope of ending the Vietnam War. Then, on April 4, 1968, the same day as the Apollo 6 mission, Martin Luther King was assassinated. The American public had much more pressing matters for their attention than the failed space mission. The Apollo 5 and 6 missions did, however, present a predicament to NASA's timeline to land on the moon. 
With the delays caused by the investigation and redesign of the command module after the Apollo 1 fire, the available time to land on the moon before the end of the decade was becoming tight. After the Apollo 5 mission, the success of the lunar excursion module encouraged NASA. They decided not to perform a second unmanned test of the lunar module. In any event, the delivery of lunar modules was so delayed that a second one was not going to be available anytime soon. So the cancellation of a second test would help to improve the odds of launching a crewed mission to the moon before 1970. But now the Apollo 6 mission created serious questions about whether the Saturn V was ready. After Apollo 4, it seemed that the Saturn V worked just fine. But Apollo 6 showed there were definitely issues to be worked on. Now the question was whether a third uncrewed Saturn V should be launched before putting any astronauts on top of one. NASA was able to put off any immediate decision because the next mission, Apollo 7, was already planned. Apollo 7 would be a crewed mission in an Apollo command module in Earth orbit. Because it was only a test for a crewed mission in Earth orbit, only a Saturn 1B rocket would be used, not a Saturn 5. This meant that NASA did not need to decide immediately whether or not to launch astronauts on top of a Saturn V for the next mission. But there was another problem. The next next mission, Apollo 8, was supposed to be a test of the lunar excursion module with a crewed mission. But as I said earlier, the delivery of the lunar modules was delayed. This meant the possibility of a gap in missions as NASA waited for a lunar excursion module to be delivered to Cape Canaveral. Or they could launch another crewed command module in Earth orbit for Apollo 8. But repeating what was essentially the Apollo 7 mission didn't seem to have much benefit for getting to the moon with the remaining available time to NASA. So it was that by mid-1968, NASA started cooking up a crazy idea. They didn't have a lunar module available, but they did have command modules and Saturn V rockets available. So why not send a crewed command module all the way to the moon using a Saturn V? Such a mission to the moon with a crewed command module would have benefits above and beyond another crewed command module mission in Earth orbit. It would teach NASA how to operate spacecraft near the moon and test out long-range communication systems. It would offer material knowledge to advance toward a moon landing. 
Logically, the argument for a crewed mission around the moon with a command module made sense. But the mission proposal also had some chutzpah. This mission would require a Saturn V rocket. The Saturn V had never carried a crew, and NASA had just finished Apollo 6, which showed there were potentially some serious problems with the Saturn V. But now, some in NASA were already suggesting that the very first crewed Saturn V launch should send astronauts all the way to the moon. But now I'm getting far ahead of myself. I will talk much more about this debate when I get to the Apollo 8 mission. Before we get to that, however, we need to go back to the Soviet Union. Because remember, the Soviets had always been far more invested in sending a crewed mission around the moon than the United States. And they are doing everything in their power to get there first. More about that next time.